0: Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Partner Over Observer, where we study the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he tells Peter that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For more information and resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. This morning we're starting a new sermon series because it's a new year, y'all. Did you know it's a new year? We're Starting a new sermon series. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 today, Matthew 16, and we're going to read verse 13 through 19. Lord, we believe your word is holy, inspired, infallible truth. Breathe on us today as we look at it, as we read it and study it. Lord, we need your presence in our midst. We don't need the intellect or the wittiness or the personality of a man. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit to breathe on this word, apply it to our hearts, and transform our lives. Maybe we walk out of here looking more like Jesus because we met with the Holy Spirit this morning. Let it be. Let it be. In Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. 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 Well, happy new year. Happy new year. Woo! We did it, we did it another year, another year, and I got another kid coming, another kid to take care of, whoo, hallelujah, little suckers are a lot of work, I don't know if you knew that, but I can do it. I've been, I've been piddling my way through the works of Jonathan Edwards over the last several weeks, and, and piddling through some biographies on Jonathan Edwards life too and many say that most say that he's the greatest theologian that our continent has ever produced maybe not the greatest preacher but the greatest theologian for sure his intellect is far beyond me you know when you read the works of Jonathan Edwards you got to read real slow and you got to sound stuff out you know what I mean sounding out words like my daughter's trying to read every morning but Robert Murray McShane, reading the life work of Edwards, said, How feeble does my spark of Christianity appear beside such a son? And and Edwards, again, was an expositor. He was a line-by-line preacher, although not a particularly charismatic person. I told you before that, do you remember, George Whitfield preached at Jonathan Edwards Church, and Sarah Edwards, Jonathan's wife, said that, George Whitfield was the greatest preacher that she had ever heard. And no preaching man wants to hear his wife say that a traveling evangelist is the greatest preacher she's ever heard. That's salt in an open wound, my friend. But Edwards wasn't particularly full of personality. He was full of brilliance. He was a master of the languages. And a lot of people call him a philosophical theologian. He, was, he, was a, he had a mind that, that leaned towards philosophy. I read in a biography recently on Jonathan Edwards that he preached over uh, he preached a series of sermons, over 30 sermons on a single verse from Isaiah. And Edwards wasn't a Puritan himself, but he was deeply impacted by Puritan theology. His Edwards father was a pastor um, and, the, and the Puritans preached with a certain formula. They would they would read a line of scripture and they would um, expound upon that line of scripture. And then they would extract from that scripture a certain doctrine or a set of doctrines then they would discuss thoroughly that doctrine. And then the last part of the sermon was the application of that doctrine. And they oftentimes talked about the benefit of applying the doctrine. So the doctrine may be the holiness of God. And how do we respond appropriately to the holiness of God? And what is the benefit of a life lived that has applied the doctrine of the holiness of God? Does that make sense? So a formula that they would constantly work through down their sermons. But Jonathan Edwards uh, used that formula over 30 weeks So for like weeks on one verse from Isaiah, he's talking about a doctrine that he pulled out. And for weeks, he's talking about the application of that doctrine. And for weeks, he's talking about the benefit of applying that doctrine to your life. Um, Jonathan Edwards is just this really very thoughtful, um, very thoughtful man. Edwards was that that kind of intellect led him to be the president of Princeton. For two months. For two months, he was the president of Princeton. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I say all that to say that over the next six weeks, I want to look at one verse of scripture and try to dig through it and, and kind of pick it apart. And I'm not by any stretch of the imagination saying that I'm as sharp or a, as great of a thinker as Jonathan Edwards. I'm just trying to make a case for the fact that it is a biblical way to preach by using the life of Edwards. But but I do want to take six weeks and we're going to look at a single line of scripture, particularly the words of Jesus in Matthew sixteen eighteen, when Jesus said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church, the gates of hell, they won't prevail against it. Let's read that passage. I'm going to start in verse 13. We'll read through 19 so that we can kind of address the larger context. You guys with me so far? Matthew 16, verse 13 through 19. The scriptures read, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? They say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that just means Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. First, let me address the kind of surrounding context before we dive into that specific line that I want to I want to. Really spend some time trying to expose. So, Jesus, in this moment outside of Caesarea Philippi, says to the disciples, Who do the crowd say that I am? They say, The Baptist, John the Baptist, Elijah, maybe Jeremiah. And Jesus asks them, Who do you say that I am? Directly pointed at the disciples, But who do you say that I am? Now, Peter's always the first person to speak up, you know, because it's in his personality. And Peter responds with, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the Christ, the Mashiach, the chosen, anointed savior of the world. You are the Messiah, the anointed one the son of god you are the fulfillment of the old testament promises concerning the son of david you are the fulfillment of the old testament promise to eve that the the the, the son of her womb would crush the head of the serpent you are the fulfillment of the future prophet moses said that there would be a future prophet coming you are the fulfillment of the the son of david who would sit on the throne forever you are the fulfillment of the priestly role isaiah prophesied that the messiah would by his stripes heal the earth Peter proclaims in one single line, you are the Messiah. You are the healer of creation. Creation will leave its brokenness and return to the paradise of Eden with perfect peace and unity and joy and love in you. You are the singular chosen person who will bring creation back to Eden. You are the Messiah. That statement alone could be unpacked for weeks. And Peter adds, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, the unique son, the exact image of God, perfectly one with God. This is a statement of deity. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to to Peter, blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, because this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the spirit of God. Jesus says that what you just uttered from your mouth, Peter, was a direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. You utter the very words of the spirit of God. Now, the next statement of Jesus is hotly debated. I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And the Roman church hasn't interpreted for years that that means that Peter will be the single person that the church will be built upon, that Peter was the apostolic successor Of Jesus, the first and the first apostle in Rome and the papacy builds its authority from drawing succession to the person of Peter in this line of scripture where they conclude that Peter must be the rock of the church. Now, I want you to know that you never build doctrine from a single line of scripture. Part of interpreting scripture, part of your hermeneutic is interpreting scripture based on scripture. And there, there's so part of the hermeneutical principle of, of trying to understand this verse, um, you would ask yourself, does the rest of the New Testament teach that Peter is the head of the church? And you would come to the conclusion that the rest of the t- New Testament by no means teaches that Peter is the chief apostle and the head of the church. Rather, in, 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 in Acts chapter 15, um, the church calls a council to try to discuss the Gentiles. The Gentiles are being saved, but they're not being circumcised. And so in Acts 15, they're trying to decide what to do about it. And so all the apostles share, and Peter will share for a while. But when it's all said and done, James says, this is my decision. And so from Acts chapter 15, we learn very quickly that James is the head of the church in Jerusalem. And you wouldn't conclude that the New Testament follows the life of Peter. Although Peter writes an epistle and is an important figure in the New Testament, I in no means intend to diminish the life or the writings of Peter. But you would probably say that the New Testament follows the life and thought of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul loved and honored Peter, but did not love and honor Peter in such a way that Peter was the supreme authority over his life. But rather, the Apostle Paul at Antioch rebuked Peter face to face in front of everybody. So, so Paul did not think so highly of Peter that Peter was the chief head of the church. Rather, Paul looked the man in the eye and rebuked him in front of everyone. And so you you don't conclude if your hermeneutic says that you interpret scripture based upon scripture and not a singular verse of scripture can build doctrine, but the whole account of scripture builds doctrine. You wouldn't conclude that Peter's the head of the church and the grammar of the Greek here wouldn't lead you to conclude that either. You would conclude by the grammar that when Jesus says you are Peter, he's playing off the name of Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. It's on the rock of Peter's profession here. Peter's profession that you are the Christ, the son of God, that profession will be the cornerstone of the church of Christ. The church of Christ will exist primarily to answer the question to the nations. Who is Jesus? And the church of Christ exists primarily to respond to every nation, to every tribe. He is the Christ and the son of God. He is the unique Chosen, anointed Messiah who will redeem all things. He is one with the Father. That is the unique profession of the church, and it, and, it, and it speaks to our entire mission is to answer that question who is Jesus? Mashiach, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now that I've said that and got that out of the way. I want to start today by looking at the statement, I will build my church. Jonathan Edwards, like most reformers, Edwards was a classic Calvinist, um, wrote much on the idea of will, of the word will, the idea of a person's will. Um, The idea of will matters significantly when you're building reformed theology. How much of your will has to do with um, the salvific process, it's theological debate. Um, Martin Luther, for instance, wrote a book called On the Bondage of the Will. The will matters a lot. And so Edwards followed suit, and he um, he, he wrote a good bit on the idea of will. And he's primarily writing on the idea of will, discussing whether or not our will has a role to play in our salvation, or if God sovereignly chooses us. But his thoughts, from a philosophical standpoint, on the idea of will, pull nicely into our discussion today about the first two words of the statement when Jesus says I will build my church. Edwards wrote first, to will something is to choose something. The beginning of I will is I desire. The beginning of I will is I prefer beginning of I will is I've made a cognitive decision to prefer this thing over and above any other thing. When you say I will to your spouse, you're saying I choose you over everyone else. And so the beginning of this statement is an exposure of the posture of the heart of the person of Jesus. When Jesus says, I will build my church, Jesus is saying I desire a church. I want a church church. I prefer a church. Before a church ever existed, Jesus said, This is what I desire. Ponder that thought for a moment. Before a church ever existed, Jesus looking forward down the corridors of time said, I will a church. I desire a church, and today Jesus still desires a church. We'll discuss in coming weeks more fully what the biblical idea of church is, because you have to immediately ask the question, "What is it? What is church? What is?" Um, but the Greek word at its foundation, ecclesia, it's where we get the, idea, the, the ideas of ecclesiology is the study of the church, ecclesia. Um, at its very base foundation, the word ekklesia just means a gathering. It means a congregation of people. When a community was voting on something or discussing something, they would call it, when that community came together, um, they would call that the ekklesia. That would be the gathering. So, like, the idea that you can do church on Sunday morning out on your boat fishing is, like, to fundamentally ignore what the word church means. Because at its very base root, it means the gathering. So like, no, you can't do church on your boat alone. You can do intimacy with God alone, but you cannot do church. Do you understand that thought? And so to be on your boat alone saying I'm doing church is to deny the very meaning of church and to resist the desire of Jesus. Because what he desired was a congregation Consider next, why does Jesus desire, prefer, or choose a church, a, a gathering, a body? Is the desire motivated primarily by his passion for his own glory? Jesus is jealous for his own glory. Glory And I would respond, of course, Jesus firstly desires a church because he is passionate about creation, worshiping the creator. The church is the place when Jesus says that in the future, people will worship in spirit and in truth. It won't matter if you're here or there. But. If you're in Israel or Samaria, we will worship, they will worship in spirit and truth. The church is the primary place where true worship is established, where creation looks to creator and worships appropriately. Jesus will display his own goodness, his own character and redeeming us from our sin by shedding his own blood. And he puts his character on display in that act of salvation. And he causes us, the church, to look at him and to say, you are beautiful. You are good. You are holy. And at the the very foundation, he gathers a people who will worship and acknowledge his everlasting glory. The church will extol Jesus forever. On the last day, thousands and thousands and thousands will surround the throne room of God. And with angelic beings, we will declare holy, holy, holy. Worthy is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth. The church's proclamation towards the Creator is worthy, holy, holy. Jesus wants a church because he wants foundationally worship to be restored in the earth. Creator, creation, relationship. Next. Is Jesus's desire for a church motivated by his love for the broken world? And I would answer, of course it is. Listen to me carefully because I know I'm like playing with ideas, concepts, As Jesus looks on the suffering of humanity, the injustice, the sorrow. Jesus, on multiple occasions in his life, weeps, looks on Jerusalem and weeps. In his divine wisdom and sovereignty, he determines to establish a new community that will display his character and administer his heart in the gospel to the nations. The church is to be the agent that evangelizes, that brings the gospel to every community, that, that brings healing to racial divisions, that brings, um, love and care to the downtrodden. The church is to look upon suffering and justice and to administer the heart of God for healing and restoration. So, so theologians say things like this. You cannot understand church Without understanding that church is an eschatological phenomena. Meaning that you can't understand church without understanding that church has to do with the end times. That the church is the body which will express heaven to the nations. The church is a foretaste of heaven. The church is a, it's the gospel on display. The nations, our community, when they experience bitterness, when they experience uh, a, a storm, devastation. They should, ex- they should have a, a foretaste of heaven when the church steps in and administers the character of God. Does this make sense? The church foundationally brings healing to the nations, expresses God's character to the nations. Leading me further to conclude that when a church is strong, when a local church is strong, the community will experience the kingdom of heaven and be impacted for the glory of God. When the church is strong, Jesus' plan to heal our nation is, is not primarily to elevate your favorite politician. I'm not saying not to vote. I believe in voting. I believe in the democratic process. You, you vote. But, but that's not the primary plan of Jesus to heal our nation. For instance, our abortion laws need to be changed. I'm, I'm not throwing stones at anybody who's had an abortion in the room. I'm just making a fundamental statement that the abortion laws need to be changed. But changing a law does not change the heart of a people. Underneath the fact that our law needs to be changed is a very real reality that the heart of our nation needs to be changed. And our nation needs to come back to the understanding that every man or woman, every color, every disability, every socioeconomic standing, every man or woman is created in the imago dei, the image of God. They have unique and innate value in the fact that they are created in God's image. The government's responsibility is not to teach that fact. It's our responsibility to teach that fact. And, and so, yes, vote. Yes, vote your conscience. But you can't put all your stock in a politician and say, you fix the abortion laws. No, you fix the abortion issue. You teach the character of God. You teach that even in the womb, even if the child in the womb is riddled with disabilities, that child still uniquely expresses and carries, is stamped with the image of its creator, and it has value. That's your responsibility to teach that. It's the churches. It, Jesus didn't look at the earth and said, I will establish this king and he'll fix everything. He said, No, I will a church. I will church. And so you can follow the logic down. We have a fatherlessness issue in our nation. My, I, I grew up without my biological father in the mix. That creates all kinds of issues. Um, there's a perpetual issue, uh, especially in our inner cities young men grow up without fathers and grow up to not be a father and there's a repetitive cycle that's an issue in our nation and, and it's an issue that if we can find some political things to help solve the problem great but at its foundation that issue is not going to be solved by the government what do you want to like demand that our schools teach family values maybe they should but you're going to demand that our teachers now teach what it means to be a father no no Jesus' will to heal that issue is a very strong local church. It's strong men of God who will be surrogate spiritual fathers and teach young men who never had a father what it means to be a godly man who raises his children in humility and in grace and in the truth of the word. It's, it's our responsibility as men and, and women, follow the logic, in the church to instill godly values into the next generation. It's not the government, not the politicians, they're not the solution. They're not the divinely chosen solution of Jesus. It's strong local churches. And you could chase that logic on down and down and down the, the church. He, he willed a church to express his character into the nation's. To choose to be a Christian who does not actively participate in the strengthening of the local church is to deny Jesus of his desire. If you resist the church, you are by consequence resisting the desire of Jesus. Second, the idea of I will communicates intention. Jesus desires a church and he intends To build one. So Jesus intends. He plans to have a church. So throughout his ministry. His earthly ministry. His sights are on a church. And so he doesn't just go to the. He doesn't just heal the sick. And go to the cross alone. But he chooses apostles. Because the apostles are going to be the leaders of the church. He doesn't just perform miracles. So that everyone knows who he is. But he teaches things. And when he teaches things like blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy by that teaching, he is instilling in the ethos of his future church. The concept of mercy. When he says things like it's better to give than to receive, the apostle Paul tells us that Jesus said that when he says things like that, he is instilling in the culture of the future church, the idea of generosity When he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He's instilling in his future church the idea of purity and holiness and sincerity. He teaches with church in mind. Do you hear what I'm saying? He raises up future leaders with church in mind. He goes to the cross with church in mind. He sheds his blood to buy back, to redeem for himself a church. Western society at its foundation is very individualistic in its thinking. That's not necessarily a wrong thing. So we say Jesus died for you. That's a true statement. Jesus did die for you. But but maybe a, a, a more accurate theological statement is Jesus died for us, for a church. He, he bought for himself a body. He went to the cross with future church in mind, with future bride in mind. Hebrews twelve two says that looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him is the bride which he will receive on the last day. And after his resurrection, he tells the disciples, go make disciples of the nations. And he is, in effect, saying, go and build my church. Build gatherings of Jesus lovers in every community, on every continent, in every tribe. Plant churches here, plant churches here. There, that's at least at its foundation the way that Paul interpreted that line. When Paul thought, how do we obey the Great Commission? Paul thought we have to plant churches. We need to raise up churches. Jesus says, I'll send the Holy Spirit to draw all men unto myself. The scriptures say that Jesus is today gracing individuals in the church with specific spiritual gifts for the edification of the body. So today, Jesus gives you spiritual gifts, not because he thinks that you're so great, but he gives you spiritual gifts because your gift is intended to edify the church. Your giftings, your talents, your specific makeup is wrapped up in the idea that Jesus wants a strong church to bring glory to his name and to redeem the nation's. You can participate in the ministry of Jesus, in the doing of Jesus, in the intention of Jesus by participating in the strengthening of the church. Or you can resist it. Third, the last thing communicated, as far as I can tell, in the idea of I will is what sometimes is referred to as volition. Um, I will is different than saying I want in this way. I want a million dollars. I do not possess the means to attain a million dollars. I will have what's in my bank account. You follow? Like, I want to fly. I will walk. I know that feels like semantics, but it's profoundly important. When Jesus says, I will build a church, he's making a statement that he has the ability, the strength, the wisdom the 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 full power to have what he wants i can't fly but i can walk jesus says i will have a church it will come to pass there is a prophetic fact okay prophetic fact given to us in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 8. This is a fact of future fulfillment. This will come to pass. There is no doubt in my mind whatsoever. I'm not an open theist. I don't think that God's sitting in heaven saying, I wonder how this is all going to shake out. This is a fact in Revelations 19, verses 7 through 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. She was given clothing of fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen she wears is the righteous acts of the saints. On the last day, the heavens will declare his bride has made herself ready. That is a future fact. It will come to pass. He is able to do it. He will have a church. It's an absolute future truth. Jesus will have a collection of saints from every background, from every ethnicity, from every class, with with all kinds of different stories and histories and personal preferences and different accents and cultural identities. He will have a uniquely diverse, yet unified bride who has made herself ready. It will happen. You can participate in that future fact or you can ignore it, but it's going to come to pass. He will have a bride. So in conclusion, Micah, if you'll get ready to come for me. Micah, come do something on the, come do something with the tickle the keys of what I'm trying to say. Oh, I didn't say you. You go sit back down. I'm just kidding. I ain't call you up here. livingstone complains because i fire her at least twice a week she says that i don't fire anybody else i only demote everybody else but she gets fired i tell micah he's demoted but she obviously ain't fired yet in conclusion the church is the desire of jesus the church was the goal of jesus's earthly ministry And the church will come to pass in the last day. So by participating in the life of our local churches in this region. And by consequence, participate, participating in building the universal church. We are participating in the desire of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus. And the future ambition of Jesus to have a bride. You can participate in that or you can ignore it. But it will come to pass. The problem is that Jesus is very easy to love. He's beautiful, he's wonderful, he's kind, he sees all of your faults, yet he shows you grace. Jesus is very easy to love. His bride is not always so easy to love. She's got some issues, okay? She sees your problems and she likes to gossip about them, okay? The bride is harder to love than the king. I gave my life to Jesus in my late teen years. And I kind of grew up in and out of church. But my late, maybe I was 18 going on 19, I gave my life to Jesus. And I went to the Methodist church that my family kind of grew up in and out of. And I was set to help lead worship. I was going to help with the worship. And um, I was going to sing two songs. And then the choir was going to sing two songs. So it was going to be like contemporary two songs and then traditional two songs. And that's how the service was going to go. And so the first week I get up to sing my two songs. And I remember it like vividly. You know, you have some memories grained in your brain. I sang um, Mighty to Save by Hillsong. And then I sang How He Loves by John Mark McMillan. But it was before the like radio version came out. Um, And I sang how he loves and my voice cracked at least three times, if not four, because puberty was bad to me, man. It was bad. Does nothing for a young man's confidence to stand in front of a congregation and sing and squeal. And on Monday, the pastor asked me to meet him in his office. And he was he was gracious. He was very kind But he'd gotten complaints from that that, that song, How He Loves. Do you remember David Crowder's changed that line that said, Heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss is the way that the song was written. He changed it to an unforeseen kiss because people complained about it. His version wasn't written yet. And I sang Heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. And people were very frustrated by that. And the pastor called me in his office and he said, Caleb, he said, I know that you're young. And he said, but I'm going to need you to be the more mature person here. And I need you to not sing that song ever again. And I never went back to that church again. And not even because I was really mad, because I was really embarrassed. Because I had like stepped out and, and tried to lead worship and it was very vulnerable. Like oftentimes, sometimes in certain church settings, worship can be very stiff And you just singing the lines but it was very vulnerable for me and I was trying to like draw us into the intimacy of God all the while my voice is cracking so I'm not like real proud of my performance and then to get critiqued on Monday morning because um this a song lyric which is silly um I never went back again because I was embarrassed a couple weeks later a friend asked me if I would come and lead worship for a there was a new church across town that was a mega church and it was a, it was a satellite campus from a mega church in South Florida and it was growing really quick. They already had three services on Sunday mornings and the, um, and the youth ministry had its own service while we were having service. And so I had to lead worship for the youth service three times every Sunday morning is what they asked me to come and do. And I came and did it and I was happy to do it. I led three services. The last service started at one and I had to be at Publix at two to close down that deli. Um, I get off about midnight because somebody had to fry that chicken and clean up all the chicken grease at the end. And that was me. I was anointed of God with the hairnet and the apron to take care of that chicken. And so I finished singing at one fifteen, one thirty and I run my happy self over to Publix and, and I was fine. I wasn't, I wasn't particularly, I, I was fine to serve, but the church was what we would call a seeker friendly church, meaning they like, We'd play secular music and the the, the sermons weren't always exactly um, revolving around the Bible. There was a lot of ideas. One of the guys in the sound booth texted me today because I didn't give him my notes soon enough. He said, you got any scriptures for today? I said, no, I'm just going to get up and share some thoughts on family and friendship. Um, but it was kind of that way. Um, but but I wasn't, I wasn't that critical. I was really just trying to serve and... I was set to go to ministry school soon. I had made up my mind I was going to go to ministry school at some point, And so I, w- I wasn't that critical. But I got this idea to do, um, I'm going to have a small group. We're going to do worship, and we're going to pray for each other, okay? And, and, and to you, that sounds normal. But in case you didn't know, in the Methodist church I grew up in and the Seeker Friendly Church, there was no such thing as the altar call or like ministry. Um, and so I had never had somebody pray for me in person, like no one had ever put their hands on me and prayed. I never confessed my sin to someone. I lived in a culture where everyone was a Christian, but no one talked about their faith and really pressed in. And it was it was like that. And so I was like, you know, what we should do is we should worship for a while and then we should partner off with a couple people and we should confess our sins and then pray for each other. And so I asked the Seeker Friendly Church, I said, hey, can I do this? Can I use a little room in the church? It was a little back room. Can I use that room? I'm just gonna have a few people and we're gonna worship and we're gonna pray. And the church says, sure, we don't, we don't care what you do. The problem was like 40 people showed up and then they cared what I did. Um, and so 40 people show up and we sing just some really intimate songs and then we pray. And I remember my older brother came. My older brother had been out of prison for two months maybe and had just gotten clean and I remember I was singing the song and I was watching him pray with one of my friends and he was crying. And I thought, good God, something's happening. This is different than anything I'd ever known. My my brother was crying. Worship pastor of the church wanted to meet with me on Monday morning. Monday for lunch. Get truthful with my statements here. We went to lunch. And he says to me, um, he says, what you're doing is not going to change anything. He said what I do is with the worship team, he said we go once a month we go to a nursing home and we bring pizza and we love on people. He said if you want to change something, you need to serve the community. And 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 I I wasn't trying to throw stones at his bringing pizza to the nursing home and loving people. I think that's great. I had nothing negative to say about that. But to make the claim that worship and prayer don't change anything was mind-boggling to me. And I and I said I said, "I said you don't understand." My brother's an addict, and he cried. Like I watched him cry. That was my that was my my theological rebuttal. Tears (laughs) fell from his face. It happened. And he said, "No, you." He said, "You're not going to change anything. Not going to change a thing." And so I went home and confused and frustrated, but I also thought maybe there's a pattern here. Like maybe some of this has to do with me. Maybe I'm not spotless. And so I decided that um, what I would do is compromise. And what we would do is we would go buy a bunch of food and we would go feed the homeless people. And then we would go back to church and sing and pray for each other. And we did. And still 40 people on a good day, 40 people show up. and We'd go. I knew every homeless person in that town. I'm not joking. I knew where they camped. I was allowed in their camp, you're not allowed to just walk in a homeless person's camp. But I was allowed when it was all said and done, because they knew I was coming with food. And I didn't bring I didn't bring junk food. I made good food, y'all. Brought them good stuff. And I would pray for them, and it was beautiful. It was, it was good. But I compromised, and the worship pastor was so tickled, he was tickled to death that I had taken his advice. But I struggled with bitterness. I remember, this is this feels silly to say out loud. But I remember I'm I'm 19, and I remember praying, God, I know that worship pastor is going to go to heaven. I want to be on the other side. I was serious too; I wasn't joking. <laughs> put me way over there. I'll take a little small shack as long as I ain't next to him. I'm, I'm good. I was so serious too. And in hindsight, the guy was like 24, and. And, and weak theologically. And, and I'm th- actually very thankful for that experience because it, it led me to really think through the presence of God. To have someone look you in the face and say, worship and prayer can never change anything. I started to think through the Scriptures and study the Scriptures, and I came to the conclusion that the only thing that changes anything is the presence of God. And that, that changed my life. It, it put me on a different trajectory. As a really young pastor, I lead in such a way as to, I believe strongly in the teaching of the Word of God. We read the Bible every week if you ain't figured that out yet. We, we, every week the sermons are about the Bible, okay? We do Bible. I, I do Bible and I believe in the, in worship that really praises God and we do like ministry. We pray for people every week because I came to the conclusion, because of that ignorant theological statement of that young man, I came to the conclusion that only God can change anything and and Lyndon Ravenhill said at one point in his life Lyndon Ravenhill said that that prayer is not the preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle itself. Meaning that nothing changes unless it happens in prayer. And I came to these deep convictions, like like no prayer is really what's going to change things. And yes, I will bring a hot meal to the homeless man, and I will make that meal with the best of my abilities, which isn't that great, by the way. I'm going to do a brownie, and I'm I'm going to do I'm going to make him a good meal. But when I give him that meal, what I'm praying is that the presence of God would touch his life and impact. This life, because if God isn't in it, then it's meaningless. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit Christian Renewal dot org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.